Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today is Armistice Day, and we're talking to the historian Margaret Macmillan about war. It's past, it's present, and it's possible future. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. As you'll hear at the end of this interview, Margaret is speaking to us from Toronto. In 2018, she gave the Wreath Lectures on the subject of the history of warfare, and they've now been turned into a book that covers just about everything about war. We started, though, by talking about the meaning of today. Margaret, we're recording this on 11-11, so it's it's Armistice Day. Um, On Sunday, on Remembrance Sunday in the UK, General Sinek Carter, the chief of the defense staff, gave an interview, a sort of reflective interview, a series of interviews about war. The headline that the newspapers ran with was that he warned that COVID could lead to World War III, which was a bit of a stretch, I think, from what he said. But the main theme of what he was talking about was, as he saw it, the danger that remembrance, particularly the remembrance of the world wars, had left us in 2020 too remote from the reality of war. And I think it was one of those warnings that generals sometimes like to do, which is just to let us know once again that war is a real possibility for us, and it is really awful. I mean, he said, people have to remember war involves killing, as though we might have forgotten it. Do you think it's a real danger that the way we commemorate war now has has left us too distant from the experience of it? I think it is a danger. And I think what's interesting is that those who've actually seen war, which I assume Nick Carter has done, tend to be very wary of it. It's easier to be enthusiastic about war or contemplate war or see war as glamorous if you're a civilian who's never seen it. And I think that can be dangerous if only because we won't then be active enough in trying to prevent it and and trying to remove some of the causes of war. I think there is a sort of complacency at the moment in a number of countries, including my own country, Canada, and certainly throughout much of Europe, that war is something we don't do anymore, that war is something that happens elsewhere, it's people in other parts of the world. We wouldn't use the term less civilized, but I think that is very much what's implied. And so I think there is really a danger that if we don't think seriously enough about war, we we may get into that sort of complacency, which is very much what people had, or a lot of people had before 1914, in Europe, that war is no longer something we do and no longer something we need to worry about. And I think they were less prepared for the crisis of 1914 than they might have otherwise been. And it's true in Britain, but I think it's true in other places too. There's a particular preoccupation, and it's a central theme of your historical work with the First World War and the commemoration still, I mean, Armistice Day is Armistice Day because of the end of the First World War with what happened 100 years ago. We'll come on to the history. Your book is primarily about the history of warfare, but you also talk a bit about the future as well. 
And you say at the end that we're potentially facing a future of warfare, which is sort of split in two ways, one towards the high tech, the other way towards the very, not just the very low tech, but a very sort of chaotic, immediate, possibly urban, where the line between war and terrorism gets blurred. And the First World War experience is so remote from both of those, not just the experience, but the memory of total war, mass mobilized war, war on the industrial scale. Is that also part of the challenge here? That when we think about the future of war, it is actually really quite different from the past. It is, I think. I mean, if it's like anything, I mean, nothing ever repeats itself in history. But if, if the future of war is like anything, it is probably rather like the 18th century, where you had war fought between highly professional armed forces, armies and navies in those days, and, and most people wouldn't have been involved in it. But you also had uprisings, rebellions, um, local brigands. And so the two types of war, I think, did coexist in the 18th century. And I, I think you're right. I think we're moving to something like this again. What I find interesting, and I can't really find an explanation for it that satisfies me, is why we make, in certain countries, not all, so much of a thing of the First World War. Um, I think for the British, the First World War is somehow a defining moment, which people are still thinking about and still trying to understand. And I find it interesting, and I can't really find an explanation for it, that you see young people whose distant ancestors now were in the First World War emotionally talking about it as, as if they have a direct connection. And, I, and I, I, I find this interesting. I'm not quite sure what it means. I think that there's a, there's a possibility, and I say, like you, Margaret, I don't know what the answer is here, but I'm struck by the phenomenon like you are. But there's, I think there's a possibility that it's because Britain never quite came to terms with fighting in the First World War. In some sense, it still hasn't made its mind up in some deep collective sense whether it was the right thing to do or not. The question of the First World War is an existential question for, for France, so because of its land being invaded and because of so much of the war, or the Western Front anyway, being fought in France. But that's not the experience in Britain. There's no, there's no way of resolving the issue in a straightforward way and there is obviously is a, a whole line of argument i'm not saying it's one that's shared by lots of people in this country but there is a line of argument that various people on the conservative side of things have, have made that it was a war that shouldn't have been fought yes i think we still wonder if it was worth it people funnily enough didn't have that feeling in the 1920s i think then the war was commemorated as a victory and people talk quite unselfconsciously about our dead heroes but I wonder if also the First World War is overshadowed, particularly in Britain, by the Second World War. I mean, for the British, the Second World War was the right war, it was a good war, the right side won. And that casts the First World War in, into a darker light. And I think also what happens, and this happens often with, with historical memory, is interpretations of past events are taken up by particular groups for their own purposes. And I think we see that very much at the moment as people are looking back at British history and, and trying to make out what it means and how it affects and how it is affected by the present. The First World War also, it captures one of the, the deep paradoxes and it runs through your account of the whole history of warfare. But maybe the First World War is a particular example of it. For many people, it exemplifies the futility of war, of course, the extraordinary violence and then the killing on a scale at that point that had never been seen before. And yet many of the things that we value came out of that war, particularly political and institutional change. So the First World War essentially gave Europe and, and Britain as well modern welfare states. The First World War gave us 
finally, universal suffrage. You know, it gave us a form of democracy. It was an emancipating conflict, and it was profoundly futile. And that that tension is there in the history of war, that war is both the worst thing and so much of the, particularly the innovation that we value, seems completely intertwined with it. Yes, it, it seems to take human beings or human societies a crisis, and it can be a war, it can be a pandemic, as we're seeing at the moment, or it can be an economic collapse. It seems to take a great catastrophe to make us think about what we value in society and to actually try and find ways of doing things better. And I wish there were other ways of doing it. But if we look at what's been happening with the, the pandemic, I think you know we've become increasingly aware of the, the flaws in our own society, the weaknesses, the unjust, injustices and unfairnesses. But we've also shown a capacity, so some societies have, most societies have actually, for people to work together and help each other out. And so, yes, it is a real paradox, but I agree. And I often get some, well, not often, but sometimes get attacked for saying that war does produce beneficial results because people assume I'm saying, well, then we should have a war so we can have beneficial results. And of course, I'm not saying that. But social change, and the other thing which people like Walter Scheidel and Thomas Piketty have pointed to is that the two world wars in a number of countries on both sides led to much greater social equality, which persisted, in fact, up until the 1960s. I'll bring Helen in a second because I was struck by that. You quote Walter Scheidel in the book. And his History of Inequality is in some ways the most depressing book I've ever read because it essentially says the only thing in human history that has been shown to be a an effective redressing of the tendency of human societies towards inequality is mass violence. I mean, it's not just war, as he said, you know, a revolution might do it too, but that there is some deep connection between peace and inequality and violence on a, on a large scale and redressing inequality. And it's really hard to know how to, you know, what lesson to draw from that for the reason you say, no one can therefore advocate violence as a remedy for inequality and yet, when you see the historical record, it's quite bleak, I think. I mean, I think the book is an admirable one, um, The Great Leveller, but I do think he tends to draw his examples from only certain countries. And it seems to me that you can find countries where it's not particularly war that has led to greater equality, but simply changes in social attitudes. Um, Sweden, for example, which was neutral in both world wars, nevertheless has moved to greater equality. And I think that's because there's been a fundamental shift in, in Swedish attitudes. And my own country, Canada, certainly was deeply affected by the Second World War, but we've moved in the direction of greater equality, while the United States has moved in the direction of greater inequality. And so I, I would, if I had a criticism of Walter Scheidel, it would be that perhaps his examples are chosen a bit too narrowly. I think that part of this is to do with the way in which the two world wars played out. And it goes back to your earlier point about the relationship between representative democratic politics as we know it and universal franchise and the First World War. Because I think there's actually a pretty specific set of conditions relating to the First World War that mean that it produces universal franchise generally. And that is the relationship between conscription and the vote, that once you've mobilised male citizens to go and fight and kill each other in a major war for between 1914 and 1918, then everyone who fights when they come back effectively has to be given the vote. And then I think if you look on the, the economic side of things, why is it the case that the First World War and the Second World War in their immediate aftermath lead to the reduction in inequality? A great deal of that is to do with the fact that who can be taxed during the wars in order to pay for, the, for their costs? 
so that you get, particularly in the First World War, effectively taxes on wealth, in the British case in, in particular, to make the finances of that war possible. So I think that the idea that there's a really general relationship between war and reducing inequality might not be as straightforward as Schneider supposes, because quite understandably, he puts quite a lot of his argument on the force of the of the two world wars, where you're talking about something that isn't really generalizable. No, I, I agree. But it's an interesting argument. And it does go back to that earlier sort of argument that war can bring beneficial social and political and intellectual changes um, in its wake. There are lots of versions of the argument that war is beneficial. And the one that probably that we're most distant from now, and you, you write about it, Margaret, is the kind of Rupert Brooke cleansing argument, you know, the idea that a war is there to sort of, after a period of peace and decadence, it sort of wakes us up to what's really important. I don't sense in the 21st century, many people have much sympathy with that. But there's another argument, which is that war is the engine of innovation. So not just of maybe redressing social injustices, but straightforwardly of technological change. And part of the reason, a sort of ironic reason, is that one of the things that wars are is incredibly wasteful. You know, governments tax on an absolutely massive scale. They throw money at the problem to see what sticks. They fund all sorts of hopeless sort of business or industrial enterprises that would normally fail in peacetime. But they keep pumping money in, particularly in the, the wars of the 20th century. And this includes the Cold War as well. And you end up with, as it were, the internet, famously, the technology that underpins the digital revolution. It was a product of the military industrial state in the United States and money being invested on a scale that private enterprise would never do. And that the shale revolution comes out of you know, military anxieties. And that's you know another big challenge for us, which is if war is connected to innovation because it's so wasteful, you cannot recreate those conditions. No, I think you can't. And um, it's a shame, though, because when you look at the challenges facing us, I mean, we, we are doing something of that, I think, in the current pandemic crisis. I mean, governments are spending money hand over fist in ways which they would have said was impossible nine months ago. And so I think we're, we're doing that with COVID. But of course, the major crisis we're facing, perhaps the existential crisis we're facing, is climate change. And there seems to me very little will on the part of governments and indeed on, on a part of a lot of citizens to actually put the resources that are needed into the research and, and the steps that are needed. I mean, there's a lot of talk about how expensive it would be to find alternative forms of energy, but not that sort of sense that we need to really get this done and money is not an object. And I, I think how we do that as societies, I think, is, is a, a more and more pressing question every day. And there's a really interesting rhetorical version of this this morning. So as I say, we're speaking on Armistice Day and this morning in London, Extinction Rebellion at the Cenotaph staged a protest where they unveiled the banner which says, and I'm looking, I'm looking, reading this on the pages of the Daily Mail. So the Daily Mail is completely outraged by this, I should say. The Daily Mail thinks that this is a betrayal of the memory of the people who died. But the banner says, honour their sacrifice, climate change means war. I mean, it's a very arresting way of framing it. I'm not sure how to understand it. I'm not even sure how to understand the phrase climate change means war. What does that mean to you when you see that or hear about that? Well, I didn't know they'd done it. And that's very interesting. I mean, I can see why they would do it. I certainly would take it to mean that as resources get scarcer, I mean, I think water is a very good example and, and one that is already being an issue. 
that we will see countries mobilizing themselves or societies mobilizing themselves to take control of what resources they need, even if it means taking control from someone else. And there's already tension, for example, between Egypt and Ethiopia over the Nile. And of course, Egypt depends on the Nile for, for almost all its water and almost all its irrigation for its agriculture. And, and if the Ethiopians continue to threaten that supply, then I think we could possibly see Egypt and Ethiopia getting into a situation where they might go to war. The same thing is happening with the countries around the border of China. Um, a number of those rivers are being diverted by the Chinese, held back by the Chinese, polluted by the Chinese. And I think this is causing real tensions. And so I suppose climate change could mean war in the sense of, of people's trying desperately to get the resources they think they need. And presumably they, they also are trying to make that point that we've been making, which is just the scale of mobilization. You know, people use phrases like this is a you know this is a greatest generation challenge, a previous generation stepped up for a real war, and now this is our challenge too. But in so many ways climate change seems to me not to operate on a kind of war footing, that the time frames are wrong the different ways in which in a given society, never mind across the world, people are impacted in different ways. I mean, it's one of the themes of modern warfare, that it is not just socially galvanizing, but it's a kind of unifying experience. And climate change to this point does not seem to be a unifying experience, a unifying crisis. It, it divides as much as it unifies. But maybe that was true of wars too. Maybe I'm being rosy-eyed about how wars unite people. But I think, you know, in, in a war, the First World War, one of the things that governments did successfully, for the most part, was persuade their people that they were under threat, that their whole society was under threat. And so the Germans felt that you know, they had to go to war because Russia was threatening to overwhelm them, and the French felt they had to go to war because Germany was threatening to overwhelm them, and, and so on. And there was a clear enemy. And so when you have a clear enemy, I think it is much easier to focus. And I think this is the problem with mobilizing for climate change, is what is the enemy? Climate change is an abstraction for a lot of people. And there's a real tendency for people living in the fortunate and temperate parts of the world to say, well, it's not my problem. I mean, I see this in Canada. I mean, we are profligate with our natural resources and, and we are one of the polluters, you know, who really should be doing something about our carbon emissions. And we're not doing nearly enough. But there's a sense that our resources are unlimited and our land is unlimited. And so, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's very difficult to imagine mobilizing around the enemy of climate change, because it's not an enemy in the same way, and, and it's diffuse, and, and the time scale is different. I think that it's a pretty confused position to take. I mean, on the one hand, is the, the sacrifices, the people who fought for Britain in this war were entirely dependent on the ability of the American state to provide this country with oil in order to fight the war in the first place. But I think, and this sort of echoes, I think what you're trying to say, David, is is that Climate change is much more like in terms of the change that would need to be brought about to achieve anything like what Extinction Rebellion wants, like a revolution, than like a war. Because it, essentially it takes the existing status quo in terms of what energy is consumed and how, and it would need to turn it completely upside down and invent something else entirely in order to succeed. And as you've suggested, David, is, is that that involves lots of people who are at the moment in a reasonably comfortable place in relation to the, the status quo, losing what they have. And so it by necessity creates division, even though there is something that's in common and that everybody experiences the climate, their present tense relationship to energy is not the same. And therefore the issue of trying to bring about something that's transformative is inherently or necessarily going to divide them. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, me, me too. 
Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, it is interesting that, that this is the, I mean, who knows if this is a general Extinction Rebellion move, but this is certainly how they've chosen to frame it today. But climate change means war has echoes of other wars on abstractions, the war on terror, the war on drugs, which now are relatively discredited, I think. I mean, there is, I don't know if this is a general lesson that's been drawn, but towards the end of the 20th century, in the early years of the 21st century, there seemed to be an overblown use of of warlike uh, rhetoric or analogies to discuss challenges which aren't like wars. And the war on terror did do, I think, quite a lot to discredit this kind of willy-nilly application of the word war to things that we want to defeat, but we're not sure how. And there's probably a risk. Do you think, Margaret, that climate change means war is more like the war on terror or the war on drugs than it is like honor their sacrifice the First World War? Well, the danger of using such language, I think, and, and using abstractions is when do you win? How do you define victory? What are your goals? And the goals just keep getting more and more open. If you have a war on terror... Who is it? I mean, in the end, you, you wage war against another organized force. And I think wars against abstractions are very dangerous because you don't know when they end and you can always justify continuing them because there's always another terrorist somewhere or fear of terrorism somewhere. And I think war for abstractions are also very dangerous. Wars for peace, wars for a better world, wars for a religion are very dangerous because they're open-ended. And I think they can be even crueler than ordinary wars. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I think if you're waging war from abstraction, anyone or anything that stands in your way ought to be eliminated. And so if you're waging war to build a new utopia, then those who oppose you are in fact objecting and and blocking what is a very important human project. And so they should be eliminated. And we've seen what this can lead to. I mean, we saw the religious wars in Europe and, and the horrors there. And, and we've seen the danger of fighting for these abstractions because there is no limit. Your book takes the very long historical view. And one of the things that connects now with much, much earlier periods of warfare is a sense possibly that some people have that what maybe 10, 20 years ago seemed more remote, great power conflict could be back with the United States and China possibly Russia too, but the the US-China relationship, and you reference this phrase that sometimes gets thrown around, the Thucydides trap, the rising power and the declining power are almost inevitably on a path at some point to military conflict. Do you think great power conflict is back, potentially? I think potentially it's back. I certainly don't think it's inevitable. And, And I really have such reservations about the Thucydides trap, because it seems to be saying that it's a predictive model. And I think there are examples in history of great powers, some declining, some rising. And even what declining and rising means is is very difficult, I think, to define. Some powers that have been in tension who have, in fact, come to an accommodation, like Britain and the United States did in the 1890s, for example. And so I, I don't see it as a predictive model, but I do think the potential for war is there. 
because you have in the United States and China two very strong societies which see themselves in particular ways. I mean, they both see themselves as civilizations and models for the rest of the world. And I think they have a very strong sense of who they are. And they are making military preparations. I mean, we know how much the United States spends. It's by far the biggest spender on things military in the world. But China is increasing its military expenditure enormously and making preparations. And there is a sort of language, particularly coming out of China. I mean, you talked earlier on about how people used to see war as cleansing and good for the nation. That hasn't entirely disappeared. I mean, the other day, Xi Jinping made a speech to Chinese military cadets, and he said something like, you must be prepared to fight for China. You must be noble. Um, you know, this was language which you could have heard, I think, in, in the years before the First World War. And so I think the potential is there. I mean, once you have the military establishments and they're making plans, I mean, that's what their job is. And so I think war becomes a little bit more likely. And then you have areas of real tension. I mean, I, I do worry about the South China Seas where American and Chinese military forces are in quite close quarters. And you can imagine an accident. And I think sometimes wars do start by accident. You can imagine an accident, two ships bumping into each other, two planes happening to crash, something happening. And then governments on both sides being pushed, often by public opinion, to do something to show that they're strong. Certainly, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I think there is a likelihood that we should be aware of. I think what's really uh, interesting about the US-China case is that, on the one hand, there's a dynamic to it, which is the Cold War dynamic, that should rule out war because this was war between nuclear powers. It should rule out direct war with each other anyway. But on the other hand, there is an element to it that's actually not there, was there in either the US-Russia-Soviet Union conflict or indeed in the challenges to American power in the first part of the, the 20th century and the, the potential for resource conflict between the United States and China because China is obviously a, a state that's wanted to take responsibility for its own energy security and has been able to do it in a way which wasn't true, like say, for Japan in the 1930s. So I think that any template that we've got from the past for thinking about the US-China relationship doesn't really apply. And I agree with you, Margaret, that the Sicilian and trap doesn't help in this respect because it, it can't capture the specificity around either the nuclear question or the energy resource conflict question. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think the danger in picking analogies from the past is you try and apply them too tightly. And we know that the combination of factors is different. We know the times are different. And I think the resource competition is different here. And it's an interesting one because in the long run, it is in the interests of both China and the United States to cooperate with each other and not get into conflict over resources. And their economies are, as we know, fairly closely intertwined and huge amounts of trade between the two and huge amounts of investment. And it makes sense for them to try and get on. What, of course, is always worrying is, is the political factor. And it's, I think, too easy for political leaders and others on both sides to demonize the other and to appeal to nationalist feeling. And I think the present, soon we hope to be ended, Trump administration has played its hand very badly with China. I mean, I think there is a lot of concern about what China's up to in a number of countries, which are potential allies for the United States. And instead of building a coalition of powers to put pressure on China, which the Chinese are likely to respond to. The Americans have been erratic, have broken up alliances, have alienated old friends. And I think it will be much more difficult now for the United States to rebuild capacity for dealing with China. But it can be done. You know, if you look at the Soviet Union and the United States, I mean, they were preparing to fight each other 
But in the end, I've often thought like a sort of couple who've been together for a long time, they quarreled a lot, but they sort of got used to each other and they learned how to deal with each other and they, they learned how to talk to each other and they learned about each other. And so they did manage the relationship, luckily for all of us, in, in a way that made the Cold War end peacefully. You do also touch in your book on a, a potentially a deeper cultural division between the West and China, so particularly in Europe, because the evolution of European states, you know, famously, states make war and war makes states on at least one count of the development of the modern state in Europe. And those states did place a high premium on military leadership, but just of the role of the military at the top of society and the long history of Chinese civilization. I mean, there is that whole art of war aspect to it, which in the West now seems to be a kind of business strategy, but also the Confucian tradition, the tradition of running an empire and the premium that that puts on administrative excellence and expertise and possibly a different kind of relationship between government and the sort of martial spirit and the the people who might lead in warfare. Is it at least possible, even in the 21st century, that war means something different in the context of the long history of Chinese civilization and what it is for that state to operate relative to those states that have emerged out of the European model? I think it's definitely possible. I mean, the, the question for me always is, how much does that long history of China continue to affect the attitudes and values of people in China today, including the leadership? Or was there some sort of rupture when, when you know, the, the collapse of, of the old regime? It wasn't just the overthrow of, of the Qing. It was the end of a whole style of government and then years of civil war and then invasion. And then, of course, the early Maoist years, which ruptured Chinese society still further. Has that marked a definitive rupture with the past or has the past reasserted itself? Fascinating question, and I don't know. But I was talking to, to a very good scholar of China the other day who said, you know, we should remember that the Chinese never fought duel down through their history where, you know, Europeans were going out with their swords and their guns and, and fighting each other. The Chinese didn't. It wasn't considered manly. It wasn't considered what you did. That military values and military people were never valued in Chinese society in the ways that they were often in the West. And so the question really, I think, for the 21st century is, is that still China? And I can't answer it, but I think it will remain to be seen. But on the other hand, you do have a China which has a huge military establishment now, and you do have these massive military parades, which seem to suggest perhaps a seeping of, of military values into the wider society. But how it will play out, I can't predict. I just going to ask you on that, going back to what we were talking earlier about the way in which wars remember, do you think that there's sort of something that's deeply different as opposed to contextually, circumstantially different in the way in which the Second World War is remembered and ceremonies around it in, in China and in European countries or indeed in the United States and Canada? No, it's a very good question. And, and there seems to be a shift. Uh, Random Mitter has just written this very interesting book called A Good War, I think is the title. And he's looking at the way in which the Chinese are reevaluating the Second World War. And seeing it as a time when the Chinese pulled together, when the communists and the nationalists pulled together. And so whether that is elevating war or simply appealing to a type of, of Chinese nationalism and stressing unity, I think is a very good question. But it does seem to me that, that Rana is onto something here, that the Chinese are rethinking with the encouragement of the leadership, the ways in which the Second World War showed something about Chinese society and affected Chinese society. So we may be seeing a shift, or it may be simply something the government is trying to promote, and, and governments don't always get what they want when they try to promote certain attitudes. 
Margaret, to finish, reading a book about war, it's a strange experience because your book draws on the experiences of soldiers, some of the great writing about war. And the great writing about war is so beautiful, so much of it. It's such extraordinary writing, I suppose, partly because of the intensity of the experience. But there's also a tradition of that kind of writing, particularly, I suppose, in the West. And so reading about war is, and you touch on this a lot in the book, it is beautiful, as well as being awful. And you know, war writing is some of the best writing of all. When you were writing this book, were you constantly pulled both ways? I mean, some of what you quote, so much of the greatest writing is writing about war. I was pulled both ways. And I think what also affected me was I thought, what would I have been like in a war? I mean, I think it's something we reflect on. Could I have done it? Or would I have been you know, running away as fast as I could? I suspect the latter. And so in a way, I think war is, is something where you see it as a test and you see it as what would I do in a war? And, I, and this is not in any way to glorify war, but you are right. I mean, some of the great writing has come out of war and throughout history, I think some of the great paintings and of course, in the 20th century, some of the great movies, you know, that, that it's something that I think because people who make such works are trying to get it, the essence of war, trying to understand it, trying to deal with the puzzle of war. And this makes what they do, I think, very interesting. It's, it's really an exploration in part of what it is to be human. And, and yes, I think there are some wonderful things. They don't glorify war, most of them, although I, I would argue the Iliad probably does, although it shows the horror of war as well. But they do get at this puzzle of war, that it brings out the best and the worst in people. And, and we all wonder ourselves, what would we do? And it is, of course, also deeply gendered. I mean, we have to recognise that. So you write a lot about the experience of women in war. And it's not just recent combat experience. War has always drawn people in and people have suffered ecumenically. It's not just the men who go and fight. But it is a deeply, historically speaking, it is a deeply gendered phenomenon how did that affect you when you were researching and writing this book? I think perhaps it made me more aware of, of the role of women. Although when I tried to think of what would I have done, I suppose I thought of myself being a soldier, which would have meant that I would have been male. And you're right. I mean, 99.9% probably of those who have fought have, have been men. And of course, then there's another very interesting debate about whether that is biological or cultural. I suspect the latter, but I think it's, again, one of those debates which will go on and on. But women certainly have been the victims of war. They've been subject to rape, slavery, and they've been the prizes of war. But they've also, at times, before we get too much on, on saying that women are gentler and kinder, they've also been the cheerleaders for war. And they've encouraged the men to go off and fight like the women did in the First World War with their white feathers. I'm going to ask you, and Helen, you might have an answer to this too. Do you have a favourite piece of war writing or a favourite war movie? I think in, in the book you... La Grande Illusion is, I got the sense, I mean, maybe just it was a word you used to describe it, that you thought it was perhaps the greatest of war films. I don't know. Do you have a particular thing that stands out for you in, in the, all of the, because you've read so much for this and it covers such a wide range? Well, there were things I knew about, like La Grande Illusion, and I thought, I still think it's an absolutely wonderful film, which, which gets at this question of honour and masculinity and, and war. And I reread the Iliad which I think more and more is, is one of the great works of literature. But I was also discovering new things. I hadn't, I'd read some of Tim O'Brien, but I hadn't read The Things They Carried, which I find enormously moving and, and very powerful about what it was like to be a soldier on the ground in Vietnam. And so those probably are the ones that, that stand out most for me. But there, there are lots of others, and, and I keep discovering new ones as well. 
Helen, do you have a favourite piece of war writing? I mean, I love um, Grand Illusion as a film. I think probably I would, the thing that's in the end made the most impact on me is probably multiple watchings of uh, Apocalypse Now, the later versions of it rather than the original version, partly because there isn't any way around the horror uh, of it, yet visually something that touches on a horrible beauty comes out of it as well. And that in itself is so interesting because the, the source material for that, The Heart of Darkness, is not a war book, is it? Not I mean, the line between war writing and just writing. Uh, it's not a clearly defined one. Yeah. Now, I think Apocalypse Now is, is amazing, and I think Helen is absolutely right. I mean, it is partly about the horrible beauty of war, and I think Francis Ford Coppola recognised that himself. You know, that opening scene I still think of with the jungle, the helicopters going back and forth and then the jungle going on fire. I mean, it's breathtaking. Um, and I think he, he felt it too. Is that Saren in your background? Yes. Sorry about <laughs> that. Okay. No, no, that's, I think that's a good note on which to end. It's not the yeah. choppers, it's the Saren. Margaret Macmillan's book is called War, How Conflict Shaped Us. And you can get it wherever you get your books. We're coming up to a milestone for Talking Politics. We're about to have our 20 millionth download. One of the people who has downloaded us, perhaps more than most, is Geordie Stewart, who has travelled around the world on his bike, Europe, Turkey, Kazakhstan, all the way to China. And as he told us when he came back, he listened to Talking Politics along the way. He's now got a book out of his own. It's called A Rolling Stone, Taking the Road Less Travelled. Ranulph Fiennes, Bear Grylls and others have recommended it. And you can find that book too on Amazon and anywhere else. Next week, we have two episodes. We're going to be speaking to Adam Tooze as part of the Bristol Economics Festival. And I'm going to be talking to James O'Brien as part of the Cambridge Literary Festival. And both of those episodes will be available next week. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. I've got a fire station very near me, so I, I apologise for it. It's not war coming to the streets of where you are. I'm in Toronto. No. <laughs> so <there> no. <laughs> when war comes to Toronto, then we're really in trouble. I think so, yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.